What you are about to hear is the first of a two-part series between myself and a sex trafficking survivor. Some of the content may be a little disturbing. Parental discretion is advised. Thank you for joining us as my guest takes us on a journey through her sometimes tragic, sometimes horrific, very much inspiring, and ultimately heroic life. And so I left the hospital six months later and I moved into my own apartment. And you would think that's where, you know, life would begin. But unfortunately, um, that's where the next horror story started. Welcome, fellow humans, to the Public and Permanent Podcast from IROC2.org, a collection of stories shared by you every week to help develop our digital consciousness, cultivating a productive, positive, and powerful global village. I am your host, Richard Gary. Let's go. Today, I want to welcome somebody incredibly special. Uh, a few months ago, I was invited to speak at a conference in Utah, and it was really about motivation and education and just elevating people. And when I was done doing my presentation, I went into the audience to sit and listen to the other presenters, and a young lady takes the stage. And... Instantly, the entire room is just captivated by an incredible story. And by the end of the story, you realize that this young lady is an incredible hero, to be perfectly honest. I don't have any other word for it. And you're going to find that out right now. I am here in the States for school. I'm becoming an international civil rights attorney. And the reason why I've chosen that path is because I am a human trafficking survivor, in particular a child trafficking survivor. I was trafficked for the first 15 years of my life by my own family, in particular by my mother. And now I am dedicating my life to end modern day slavery. I know you've told this story to so many, to so many people. Um, I, I don't. I think when people hear the word human trafficking or sex trafficking, I don't know if they truly understand the depths and the breadth of of what that is or what it can be. So, if you're if you are comfortable with it, would you be able to tell our listeners your story? And and I ask that because should there be anybody listening who may find themselves in a similar situation, they they may not realize that they're in that situation. And so would yeah. you mind just telling telling the audience um, what your what your story really is to, so they can understand just how incredible and brave you really are? <laughs> okay, yeah, absolutely. So I guess set back and listen because it's kind of a longer story. <laughs> so um, as mentioned, I'm a child trafficking survivor and a lot of people when they hear human trafficking, they um, associate Hollywood movies like Taken um, or anything like it to it and believe that human trafficking only happens when you kidnap and shipped around the world and though those cases happen the majority of cases do look completely different which also is my case so my case is called familial trafficking which is really really common in child trafficking um, that children are being trafficked by own family members and in my case it was my mother who was my main trafficker and that's where my story began um, i was born into modern day slavery to the outside world, I really am the typical girl next door. 
Um, and I always seemed like the typical girl next door um, when I was younger. Um, I went to school in the mornings, went to dance classes and horseback riding and listened to Celine Dion and, you know, just the normal regular things. But the difference for me was when I got home and the door shut, everything changed. Um, uh, people would come to our house to purchase me or my siblings to abuse us and um, everything happened in plain sight. So the reason why this all could happen or what's happening to us is when you're born in a situation like this or any, basically any abusive situation and you don't know anything different, the things that happen to you are normal. As much as when you look back into your childhood, that was normal. And so what I experienced as a child, I believed was normal because I had nothing else to compare it to. And there were times where nothing really happened for weeks. And then there were moments and times of the year where um, you, we would be raped 10 to 50 times a day. Um, and I want to emphasize not 15, it's 50, 5 And how, how is this even possible? You're probably asking yourself now. Well, while everyone else was enjoying Christmas morning or going on the long desired summer vacation or you know, where we would have to, a lot of time. I panicked because I knew the demand for child sex was increased because everybody had more time and more money. And so that was when business picked up for, for our, us at home. And a lot of questions also come in regards like, how could this happen in a neighborhood? Really only unusual thing about us to the outside world was that we moved at least once a year. So I was in 16 different schools before the age of 14, which I learned later on, this is a tactic of, a, of traffickers to keep victims disorientated and to not give them any opportunity to build a trusted relationship with anyone or a support system. So I was always a new kid in school. I was always bullied for being shy and weird and new. And I've never had a trusted relationship with teachers or anyone really because it was always new and um, and then also, while here in America, it is really a cultural thing to have small talk and to know your neighbors and to ask the cashier at the store how they are. In Germany, people are really closed off. Um, and so you don't let anyone as easily into your life. So there's this cultural difference as well, where you wouldn't ask people on the street, hey, how are you? you know, and people just mind their own business. And then also, on top of everything, we as children, we were highly manipulated and emotionally abused and put under pressure that no matter what, we don't talk about what happens at home that is private. So there's the cultural difference that I try to explain to help people understand why this could have happened. And so for many years of my childhood, I've never thought that what happens to us is unnormal. And the people who would buy me or my siblings were people we trust on a daily basis, um, police officers, lawyers, doctors, teachers, really normal people. And so because I only experienced that and nothing else, I had nothing else to, to look for, I never complained really other than physical pain. Then I started watching when I was really young Gilmore Girls. 
into this show about the mother-daughter relationship that I started loving. And um, that's when I started questioning, why don't I have a relationship to my mother like they have? Um, and then also, while I was all really, really young, was creating this imaginary world where I could dissociate to every time something bad happened. And in this world, Celine Dion was my mother. And so every time something bad happened to me, I disconnected from my body. And I went into this world where Celine Dion would tuck me in bed and sing me lullaby and I could tell her every time something bad happened. Um, and then when I was about six or seven, I started watching the NBC show Law and Order Special Victims Unit. <laughs> and shout out to the show, literally saved me. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, um, that must have maybe opened a curtain a little bit. After a while, I started realizing, hang on, why is my life so similar to all what they're talking about mm -hmm. and so i then i started including marishka hargiti who's playing the detective olivia benson on that show into my imaginary world and i imagined that she would come and rescue me and my siblings and arrest the bad guys and i started realizing that something is really terribly wrong because everything was too similar to what the show is explaining. And I literally learned from that American TV show what good and bad touch is. And that what happens to me is something really, really bad and it should not be happening to me. And um, well, when I was about 12 years old, my older sister wanted to go talk to her teacher about what's happening to us. And when that was found out by my mother, my sister was brutally murdered. Oh and I was forced to witness her murder as a quote-unquote lesson that you don't talk about what's happening at home. Uh, and that is where we again fell through the cracks of the system because all that was announced to the school system was that my sister is continuing school in Croatia and paper was submitted and nobody followed up and so it was covered up. So your sister, so, so nobody knew your sister was murdered? No. They they mm -hmm. covered it up and like like they sent her away yes and, and exactly. how old was she she was 14 and i was 12 at that point wow mm -hmm. and so that is when i knew i needed to get away but i was 12 years old so how can i get out by myself from something like that so i started researching on the internet and i found a clinic on the other side of the country that was treating traumatized children and i called them on behalf of a friend because I was so scared to get in trouble. And um, long story short, what the clinic taught me that if, as long as they don't know the name of my friend, um, I, I think they already assumed I'm talking about myself, but as long as they don't know the name, they can come and get her. But they said, if my friend would come to the clinic, she would be in a safe place and nobody could take her out because there's a wonderful law. If a child wants to get treated, even against their will of their parents, uh, that child won't be taken out of hospital. And so that I knew was my ticket, but I got so scared because I had no money. How do I get from one side of the country to the other side at 12 years old? And so I kind of gave up that, that, you know, hope and life continued in, that entire torture, um, child trafficking um, world. Still went to school and everything continued as usual. And then at 14, um, I became pregnant of one of the abusers. 
and it wasn't detected until later on in the pregnancy. And I was about six months into the pregnancy and an illegal abortion without anesthesia was performed on me. And it was a really horrific experience. And I barely survived it. And I, I feel really lucky that I did. And that's when I knew that I needed to get away. And I was coming up with a plan after this horrific event and decided that I need to get away. And so a few months passed and then my mother decided that she wanted to go to Poland for the weekend um, in November. And I was like, okay, this is my ticket. And so she left the house and I started packing some stuff because I knew this would be my chance to get away without her noticing right away that I'm gone. And so she left, I started packing and after um, an hour, I kid you not, she called and she said to me, I have a bad feeling I'm returning, I'm coming back home. Mm. I was convinced in that moment that this lady is a witch. Like, how <laughs> can she know? <laughs> I was like, what the? And so my heart shattered and I believe that this was it and I'm going to die in this world. And so she came home, I went to bed and I was heartbroken about everything that, you know, happened and is going to happen. And then in the middle of the night of November 2nd, 2009, I like to describe it. It felt like somebody was waking me, but not just from my sleep, but waking me that I need to go and I need to go now. And I kind of like, do you know, like when you sometimes have this crazy ideas and then you, you think like, oh, I need to do that right now. Yeah. And that was like this wave of insane courage that came over me. It's like, okay, I got to do this and I got to do this now. So I got up, went to my closet. I was so quiet, not even daring to breathe. I grabbed my backpack, threw in some underwear, um, went to my door, quietly opened it and tiptoed down the sterile staircase went to my mother's wallet and took out the exact amount of money I needed for the train, which was 113 euros. Um, first and last time in my life, I stole money. <laughs> uh, and I went to the door, put in my iPod back at that time and put on Celine Dion's Taking Chances song. And that's when I just ran. It was about three or four in the morning and I didn't feel anything other than the cold air in my face and the music playing. And, um, just saying that again, it's just like, I start shaking. It was yeah. just so dramatic. And so I went to the bus station and the bus arrived. And I remember the bus driver was like, oh, are you going on a trip? And I literally tell him, no, I'm running away from home. And he's like, well, do I need to call the cops? And I look at him and was like, well, if you call the cops, then I can't run away from home. And he's like, well, good <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah, well, and thank so goodness he, let, he didn't. <laughs> well, he let me go, you know, and I, looking back, that was literally an angel sin mm -hmm. um, on my pass I could get away. And then I made it from that little station, train station to the main station um, in Stuttgart, Germany. Jumped on the train. I was so paranoid. It was like 6.20 in the morning at that point. Jumped on the train to Frankfurt, which was like a three hour train ride. And then when I was in Frankfurt, for anyone that was ever in Germany, into any German main stations, they know how crazy they are. And Frankfurt main station is by far the worst. It's huge, it's chaotic, it's, it's just incredible. <laughs> and there I am at 15, alone, doing this, never been somewhere by myself. And all I can think of, hang on, in all of those movies and in on Otter, 
they're all throwing away their phones if they don't want to be tracked. <laughs> so what do I do? Bye bye phone. Threw it away to the next drive. You threw it away. Because <laughs> yeah. it started ringing. It was my mother, and so I, was, I started panicking. Right, right. I was um, going to ask you, yeah, if your mom tried to yes. reach you, right? Okay. So at that point, she noticed that I wasn't there, and so I, I panicked and I threw away my phone. And um, again, thank you, Law and Order. <laughs> there you go. The real things. <laughs> And um, well, then I jumped into the train to Hanover and well, and then I made it to the hospital and I was admitted to the regular station first because I was, I was in really, really bad condition. I was malnourished and bruised and it's a tactic of traffickers to keep um, victims look young, to starve them, to push up, push off um, puberty because the younger you look, the more money the trafficker makes. And it's really interesting. A lot of trafficking survivors do look extremely young and I'm 26 and I still look like 17. Um, if you meet with survivors, all of I, all of the survivors I know, they do look extremely young. Anyway, so I was in the hospital. I didn't share much right away because I was so scared, but they knew that was something was going on. And my mother started suing me right away, um, demanding that I move back home. And it was really, really, really hard. And after three days, I started saying that my stepfather abused me. I didn't go as far as um, testifying against my mother. Because here you are, 15, all you know is your family. And you're in the biggest loyalty issue that you could ever be in. You feel so torn because of the things that you know that happened. But on the other hand, it's your mother, like your family. You, yeah. you know, you're just so conflicted. And so it was really hard for me starting to talk about anything and um, which I didn't do right away. And then after a while they did start investigating my stepfather and um, but n never my mother at that point. And so I left the hospital six months later and I moved into my own apartment. And you would think that's where, you know, life would begin. But unfortunately, um, that's where the next horror story started. So when I was 16 and leaving the hospital, moving my own apartment, I started high school because my biggest dream was to go to high school and be the first, you know, to graduate high school and go to college. And then I decided that I wanted to see a therapist to work on all my trauma. And so I started seeing a therapist and with that therapist, I encountered my next abuser. And so what happened is that I started having sessions with him and after a while he offered me a private contact. He felt so bad that I don't have anyone really, no family and here I am 16 going to school in the morning, working at night to finance myself. And, and so he's like, well, how about we, you know, do private contact instead of professional? And I was over the moon, you know, at 16 and coming from the background I come from, I came from, uh, you don't see the red flags. Yeah. Um, and so I was just so over the moon that somebody would care enough about me to offer me private contact. And so I said, yes. So everything was fine. And then after a while, he said, why don't you move in with me? So you don't have to worry about your rent or food or anything. And you just can focus on schooling. Again, didn't see the, the red flags and all I could think of was like, thankfully, there's somebody who wants to take care of me. Sure. You're so young, safety, comfort. Someone, yeah, totally understand. 
And I've never felt any romantic feelings toward that therapist. He was over 40, now 16. Mm -hmm. But what I felt was just a mentor slash father figure. Um, And so I moved in and in the beginning, everything was fine. And then after a while, the world started to become more and more and it was getting harder and harder to keep up with the rules and so he started to become more angry over the time and frustrated and i don't know it was really abusive and that's when looking back now i can see where the domestic violence started and the abuse and then he decided that he would take me out of school for a while because he wants to focus on my mental healing and so i let it on so he isolated me from every contact i've already established at that point and then one of the days he decided that i'm not allowed anymore to lock the doors and the first time that abuse would happen uh, was when i was in the bathroom taking a shower and he just walked in like nothing no big deal and started brushing my, his teeth and i was like what are you doing um and so that's when he um assaulted me the first time and so that entire situation it went on for two years where he would put me down in his basement for a while and do whatever he wanted to and brainwashed me completely and after a while he would allow me to go to get groceries and i wouldn't dare to leave because he was so good at manipulating me while i was in that basement he's like look nobody's looking for you nobody's missing you i'm the only person who cares about you you have nowhere to go and i totally believed that i had no place to go no no one who cared no money i was financially dependent on that person at that point emotionally dependent and i was so young you know and all i knew was abuse and that was the only thing that felt safe so for two years i went through that and in november 2013 celine dion had a new album out and i was so angry at her it's like how dare you sing about love this is love i'm done and so that day i went it was the end of november in 2013 and i went instead of a grocery store to a pharmacy and um, bought all the painkillers I could find and um, went to a forest with a bottle of wine and I downed all the pills and I ended up suicide. And um, I, that was the most scary thing, I think, that I've endured after everything. And I passed out after about 20 minutes and then everything, what happened was just told to me that I was found by a doc and its owner, luckily, and they performed CPR and called the ambulance and they got me back to life. But I did um, fall into a coma for a week and I woke up and I was really, really fortunate. I didn't suffer any brain damage or anything, which was really lucky um, because no one really knows how long I was without oxygen or whatever. And we know like if you out of oxygen for more than four minutes, then you suffer from brain damage. So I got really lucky, I guess. And I remember the doctors were a little bit confused that nobody was looking for me, but they did see my keychain, which was like a little Celine Dion um, icon. And they brought me the new album and I, I yelled at the doctors, how dare you bring me this album? I don't want to listen to it. But then they finally spoke to me and I listened to it. And that's the cheesy part of the story. The very first song on that album is called Love Me Back to Life. And I listened to it. And something within me shifted. And when that song finished, after I finished listening to it, I started pressing that red button for the nurse. He was hysterically like, I need to talk to someone. So they came in and I yelled at them that I need to talk to a police officer right away. And so they brought in the police. 
and I started uh, testifying against the therapist and the first testimony was over an eight hours long. Um, and then, so they went and investigated and arrested that therapist and he's convicted. And that's when my life actually began at age 18. And I was like, okay, let's go back to high school. My biggest dream is still to graduate high school. And so I did. I went to the school in the morning and to work at night and kind of made it myself. And I graduated high school. And I was like, okay, what is my dream in life? And my biggest dream in life was always to live in New York City. Um, the place where dreams are alive and everybody's working so hard and it just feels so electrified. And also with the, the place where law and order plays, you know, <laughs> special victims here. It's like, I gotta go. <laughs> so I saved up money for two years and I worked as hard as I could and I finally saved up the money I needed. And at age 21, I moved to New York and it was July 20th in 2015 when I stepped on that plane and landed in JFK and I remember the very first time I drove into Manhattan I remember when I stepped out and it was at Central in Central Park at Strawberry Fields and every it was just the most amazing feeling and I don't know how to describe it I was just thinking I did it yeah I really did it I survived And um, oh, I just get emotional every time I think about it. It's just every bad thing made sense at that point to me. I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do something about this. So I lived in New York for a year, had the year of my life. Um, I went skydiving, which was my dream. And it was just crazy. I've never run into Mariska Hargitay at that point. <laughs> trying really hard. If Mariska for some point ever listens to it, I'm so sorry. I promise I'm not a stalker. <laughs> and um, well, to the entire staff, you know, in front of camera and behind the scenes, you guys, like it's the ripple effect of that show is much greater. And I know they're doing great work. Um, a lot of survivors do relate. But anyway, so then after a year, I felt really compelled to move West Coast. And it didn't make any sense to me why or why not. And so I was like, well, I guess I can move to California. And I kind of ripped my heart apart, but I also knew for some reason I needed to do this. And instead of California, I ended up in Las Vegas and all of the places. I've never been a party girl. I've never liked drinking or anything. I, I didn't like anything that would take away control from me. So I've never been into partying and I was like, well, now here I am in Las Vegas. But to be honest, that year shaped the pathway for my future um, where I decided what I need to do in life. So I left in New York and I came in contact with a few organizations that fight human trafficking. And that's when I actually learned that what happened to me was child trafficking. It took many, many years until after I escaped that somebody was educating me and teaching me, girl, what happened to you is child trafficking. And I remember the day when I talked to those professionals and when they explained it to me, my heart and soul shattered. Because up until that point, I was like, well, I was just abused, you know? Like my view of human trafficking was you get kidnapped, you get shipped around the world and you get raped by many, 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 many people. And when they said, no, you know, child trafficking actually happens also in the home 
and especially in family, family families that uh, it just broke me and I felt so much dirt and disgust towards myself um and I felt so sad and broken and I remember that lady was like it wasn't your fault you survived and that is all that matters and why don't you take your path and help others to understand so nobody has to go through that moment of learning many years after what happens to them or happened to them is human trafficking and so i was like okay let's do this and i understand why i needed to be there um for that year because that's when i started to get really involved and i by human trafficking now <laughs> and I speak globally and a lot of people have so many misconceptions about trafficking and child trafficking that I felt called to to educate all segments of society because I believe once everybody knows and knows truth about it and is educated about it um, it can be stopped because truly human trafficking the majority of cases are hidden in plain sight and i promise and guarantee you that you've already watched human trafficking at least five times in your life without knowing what you're looking at please join us next time as we continue our conversation and we'll discuss things like how can we spot human trafficking how can we help victims and how can we keep our families safe you'll also learn just how big a problem human trafficking is for example here's a clip here are some numbers. We have more slaves today than ever before in history. Over 40 million victims worldwide are held as slaves. And the capital of human trafficking is not a developing country. It is here in the United States. Um, over 80% of customers for child sex worldwide are American men and women. The average age of a child traffic victim is between 12 and 14. It is the fastest growing criminal enterprise, which claims over $53 trillion. It is the most lucrative crime around the world because unlike drugs or weapons, you can sell a human being multiple times a day. Please join us on our next episode to hear the conclusion of my guest's story and the incredible work that she's doing to end human trafficking. She truly is an inspiring woman, and you don't want to miss the next chapter of this amazing story. So join us next time on the Public and Permanent Podcast. I just want to thank you all again for the privilege of your time. We also want to thank everybody who submitted a voicemail and email to be on the show. We are reviewing all of your stories and we will be in touch. If you like what you hear, please be sure to follow us and like us on Apple Podcast and Stitcher. You can learn more about the podcast, including how you can leave us a voicemail or an email to be on the show where people can share ideas, thoughts, stories, and support, as well as learn more about some of our featured guests and downloadable documents and other information we'll be providing as the season continues. For all of this information and more, please visit our website at www.iro.com to iroc the number two.org forward slash podcast thank you all so much again for listening i look forward to telling you more stories and hearing your stories remember you're listening to this on a tool that connects you to billions of people so use that tool to be amazing be well friends cheers